going to read from Matthew's Gospel as we recall the events of Palm Sunday, Jesus entering Jerusalem. It's Matthew chapter 21, and the words will be on the screen, um, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's invite Tom to come. Let's pray for Tom. Father, I want to thank you for how you stirred in Tom over many years your amazing work in his life. Thank you for this man. I want to thank you for his family. I ask that you bless them. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've laid on Tom's heart for this morning. Lord, Holy Spirit, come. Anoint him afresh. As we hear what he's saying and what you're saying through him, Lord, give us ears to hear and the hearts and the wills to be obedient to what you're saying, Lord. Bless Tom, Lord. He'd be overflowing afresh. And where he feels weak, perhaps at times, like we all do, that's just strengthen him now. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but I really feel God is here in this place. Um, behind the drum kit, God's there. In the worship, God is there. In the reading, God is is there. And amongst the congregation, God's there. I really feel uh, a, a sense of uh, God moving in a powerful way. Uh, and this is completely separate to what I plan to talk about, but I just want to acknowledge that because um, I really, really feel like God is stirring and moving more and more and more in our church. And it is exciting. It's fantastic. It's exciting. Kind of on the back of that this morning is about expectation. 
That's the title of the sermon, Expecting the, uh, the, the Risen King. So got a, got a nice little story to start with. It's a true story about how I ended up proposing uh, to Nick and about Nick's expectations of the, uh, of the proposal. Because um, we all know that Nick is super laid back and would have accepted anything. Actually, to be fair, she would have. But uh, So Nick had been, I was down living in Devon at the time, uh, working with a church there. And um, Nick had conveniently arranged um, for her own block placement, which is a six-week thing you do as part of college, to be with a church in Exeter. Uh, completely coincidentally, of course, not because it was near her boyfriend at the time. Um, definitely God's work. Uh, so, so Nick was down, and you know we'd been we'd been dating for some time. We'd been building our relationship for um, for a bit of time, and um, I decided that Nick was the one for me. I felt that God was telling me Nick was the one for me. So I thought, right, got to do it. And so. Um, uh, unbeknownst to Nick, I arranged a phone call with Ali and Helen, uh, do this the traditional way and get their, um, their permission to, to ask Nick to marry me. I, I really wanted their blessing. And um, that didn't go to plan, not because they said no, they, did, they said yes, um, but it was going to happen after work. I was supposed to finish my shift at four. That would give me time to get home, get changed, get comfortable, be in my own comfortable setting. Um, and then a staff member turned up late, so I had to finish their shift. And so instead of phoning Ali and Helen from the comfort of my home, I phoned them from outside Screwfix, Newton Abbott. It was cold, it was windy, it was dark, and I had to have this quite nerve-wracking, serious conversation with them. So already, my expectations were somewhat dashed. But nonetheless, they... I don't know whether it's graciously or gratefully said, yeah, take her, uh, but they, they gave their blessing. And um, uh, this is a really important part of the story here. Um, I couldn't keep my mouth shut about this and basically told Nick that they'd given the blessing. I know that's not quite traditional, but I, I could, it, there, was, there was lots of reasons for it. Um, and, and so Nick knew. She knew that, that, that her parents had given this blessing. So you would think that when we go on a romantic date about three days before she's due to travel back to Bournemouth and we go for a sunset picnic overlooking the sea, that she might expect something. We'd already talked about it and she'd already told me how she'd like to be proposed to. Not in too much detail, but... She did. Oh, she did. Well, you know, she, she basically told me that if it was a big public fanfare, she'd say no. So that was out of the question. Uh, she wanted something quiet and private. She wasn't too descriptive, but she wanted it to be a quiet, private moment between the two of us. So in this field, overlooking some cliffs and the sea, as the sun is setting behind us, the stage is set. Now, you would think that Nick might have some kind of expectation of what's about to happen. But no, she's just enjoying spending time with her super handsome, amazing boyfriend. Um, and they're having a picnic. Anyway, I start talking to Nick about our relationship and saying that, you know, I felt really good about us. And I told her that you know, I, I loved her and I went through some of the, like the high points that we'd been through. And then I, I had this line all planned out. It was super smooth. It's going to say... You know, instead of me telling you how much I love you, 
why don't I show you? Oh yes, ladies, smooth. <laughs> and I reached into my bag, and I had my, I had my bag next to me, and in my bag were, were two things, a bottle of Prosecco and the ring, okay, in the box. So I reached into my bag, and Nick looked over, and she spotted the Prosecco. And no word of a lie, there's video evidence of this, by the way, it's on Facebook, I can show you it. No word of a lie, genuinely, hand on heart, Nick thought that the way that I was going to express my love for her, the way that I was going to show her how I felt about her, was to give her a six-pound bottle of Tesco's own Prosecco. I kid you not. Her response was... <gasps> you got me Prosecco. And I'm there like, I'm ready to swing round. And, and I'm like, no, 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 I've, I've, I've got a ring. And she was like, oh, oh, oh my goodness. And she starts crying and I'm like, you need to answer the question. She's like, yeah, of course, yeah, of course. And then, and then it was lovely and, you know, the rest is history. We now have a kid, happy days, um, all of that jazz. Nick had this really, in a, in a nice way, this really low expectation she thought that the way that I was going to express my undying love for her was by giving her a cheap bottle of Prosecco, okay? And she genuinely thought that was... So imagine her surprise, her elation and her joy when the ring pops out. And it's the ring that she wanted as well. She told me the style, which again, very, very prescriptive. I went slightly off-piste, but I got away with it. Um, and uh, yeah, and so, yeah, we got engaged and it was fantastic. Happy days. Expectation can bring great joy and excitement. When we were um, long distance um, dating and then when we were long distance engaged, every time we were going to meet up, whether it was me traveling to her or her traveling to me, there was an expectation and an excitement. We were happier. We had a spring in our step. Imagine if it was the other way around, though. Imagine if I planned this lovely picnic and the way I was going to tell Nick I loved her was by giving her a bottle of Prosecco, but she was expecting a ring. What would have happened then? Would she have been elated? She probably would have feigned elation. But her expectation would have been dashed. And so expectations, especially where those expectations are perhaps in the wrong place, they can really hurt. They can cause great pain. If Nick was expecting a ring and got a six-pound bottle of Prosecco, she would have been quite upset. She probably would have been very kind and gracious, but she would have been quite upset. Fortunately, it wasn't that way around. We're all good. Expectation versus reality. This is Palm Sunday, okay? And a traditional thing that um, certainly when I was a kid that we liked to do was we liked to make our own palm fronds. If we were lucky, we actually got some palm leaves or something similar that we could weave together. Otherwise, we'd do it with um, cardboard. And um, if, uh, if you're someone like me, you're not very creative. I won't be volunteering for the team. Apologies, but my, my art capability is, is not fantastic. Um, I have a quite low expectation of what my palm frond is going to look like. If you're someone like, for example, Rosemary Haynes, who is incredibly talented when it comes to um, floral displays, you might expect something a bit different. So if I could have my first image, expectation versus reality, Palm Sunday, I, I think if it was me making this, I would expect to be the one on the right. 
I would be the reality. Uh, if it was someone who had a lot of experience, creativity in, um, in creating floral displays, we might expect something on the left. Expectation versus reality. Sometimes our expectations don't quite match up with the reality in front of us. For example, John goes to bed at half six. He always goes to bed at half six. He definitely goes to bed at half six. It's his bedtime. And what happens is we take John upstairs and we give him his bottle and we put him in his crib and he falls beautifully asleep and his arms spread out and his head does this and then happy days, he's asleep. Of course, the reality slightly different. Bed by six? Nope. Nope. Awake at 11 p.m. And in fact, I made this meme. This is a meme. I made this meme um, after we put John to bed, and it was a bit of a wrestle, but we got him there. And last night was one of the worst nights we've had with him for sleep that we've had in a really long time. Expectation versus reality. Expectation can cause us great joy, but if it's failed to be met, it can cause huge heartache. I'll come back to that at the end of this. But let's, let's look at the passage. Let's talk about the passage. So, Matthew chapter 21. Uh, it comes at the end of uh, a huge ministry push by Jesus. Um, kind of <laughs> wrapping up the history very briefly. Jesus had spent time in Jerusalem. He began to get challenged by the Pharisees. And he went, nope, not my time. So he left. And he went back to Galilee, did some stuff in Galilee, um, Jesus-y stuff, you know. And then um, he began a, a ministry trip, effectively, from Galilee, which is in the north of Israel, uh, down to uh, eventually Jerusalem, which is where we kind of come to in this passage. And his journey was quite a long one. He didn't go straight. He didn't take the route that you might expect someone doing that journey to do. He, he went quite kind of circuitous and, uh, and around the place. The last place, the last location that's mentioned in Matthew before the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, is um, the city of Jericho, the one with Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, Jericho, that one. Uh, it's about 15 miles from Jerusalem, which uh, was all an uphill walk via desert, so it would take about eight hours on a good day, so it's quite a long journey. And... Um, Prior to kind of all of this, a lot of stuff has been happening in Jesus's ministry trip. At the start of Jesus's ministry, I wouldn't say he was understated, but he certainly was quite careful about the words that he used. He didn't want to uh, directly call himself the Messiah, for example. He does allude to it, but he starts quite, in that sense, quite subtle. But quite a few things happen on this ministry trip that begin to change that and shake that up. We have the transfiguration, the moment where Jesus is seen in his glory on the mountain with, uh, with Elijah and Moses. Jennifer preached on it a few weeks ago. We've got the raising of Lazarus from the dead, showing that he had command over life and death itself. This actually happened near Bethphage. So the, the location in this passage is very, very near where Lazarus was raised from the dead. And then on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, Jesus heals two blind men. Um, in chapter 20, he heals two blind men. And these blind men declare him the Christ. They declare him Lord, Messiah, King. They recognize his authority. One of Jesus' disciples, 
recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. So things are starting to ramp up in terms of Jesus's ministry. We've gone from Jesus shaking up the norm, preaching the word, healing the sick, but keeping that kind of idea of him being the Messiah just a little bit under wraps to really ramping it up. And the way Jesus enters Jerusalem is pretty much, from a Jewish perspective, about as bold a statement that says, I am the Messiah, as could possibly be. A big crowd of people's gathered. Okay, when we uh, look at pictures that people have drawn of Jesus' entry, we often kind of just see there's Jesus with, his, uh, with the donkey on the colt and the disciples and then a load of people in the streets of Jerusalem waving him in. That's not actually quite accurate if we look at the, the passage and the, line, the passages that line up. Actually, what was more likely is as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he had a huge crowd of people following him people that were following him from the start of his ministry. He had his disciples, but also probably following Jesus would be people like Lazarus, his friend, the man that he rose from the grave, Martha, Mary, quite possibly his own mother, Mary, as well. He would have had the blind men that he healed following him and crowds and crowds of people. Everywhere Jesus goes, crowds of people follow Think about a lot of the feeding of the 5,000 style miracles. There's at least two of those. And Jesus has to sneak away to get some private time. So Jesus is being followed on his trip to Jerusalem by lots and lots of people. A lot of them would have recognized that something is special about Jesus. Some of them would have been there for the hype. But a lot of them would have been there because something's special about this man. Um, this entry happens around Passover. It's the Passover meal, which happens a few days after where we get communion from. Um, so Passover, huge festival for the Jewish people, a time where they, they celebrate God saving them um, when the angel of the Lord passed over them and spared the lives of their firstborn when they were uh, in, uh, in enslavement in Egypt. Big, big festival. And in the, uh, in the Jewish context, every year... At Passover, the kind of the hype, the expectation for the Messiah to turn up increases. They held the Passover in such high esteem that kind of the expectation that the Messiah would turn up sits down here, down here, down here. Passover comes and it shoots right up. They, a lot of Jewish people thought that when the Messiah arrives, it will be at Passover. So there's this understanding something special is going to happen. It's Passover. The Messiah could turn up. Jesus makes his position abundantly clear. Matthew quotes from um, Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 which um, is pretty much a direct quote in Matthew. Um, if you look them up in your Bible, there's only one line difference, but otherwise they're identical. Uh, and this is a, what's called a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy about the Messiah. And it states the Messiah will come, and he will be riding on a colt, which is a, or a foal, a young donkey. He will be riding peacefully, coming to save his people. As I said, this is about as bold a statement as Jesus could have made, other than shouting, I am the Messiah. It's interesting that both the prophecy and Jesus choose to use a donkey, because 
This is also Jesus saying he's a king. Because back in that day, kings would ride on donkeys. We often see donkeys as like a lesser horse, right? They're sort of a, a horse for kids, maybe, or the thing that you pet at the petting zoo. But back then, kings would have ridden on donkeys. But only in peacetime. During wartime, they would ride a war horse. So Jesus, riding a donkey, says, I'm a king who is bringing peace. I am a king in peacetime. I am not here as a conqueror. I'm not here to wage a war. And this probably shook some people up. Because the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah who would conquer. They were expecting a leader to rise up who would lead a revolution that would free the Israelites from their, um, uh, not their captivity, but their, their subjugation by the Romans. You see, I think I've talked about this before, but prior to the Gospels, there's about a 400-year gap since the last prophet uh, delivers judgment from God. And there's a 400-year gap where effectively God is silent. And a lot of stuff happens in that time. And a lot of that stuff involves people coming and ransacking Jerusalem or taking over Jerusalem and trying to rule these people. You see, Jerusalem was quite a key location. The country was a key location between what we would now call the Middle East and Egypt. And you wanted Egypt. If you wanted to rule the world, you needed to get Egypt. But you also wanted the places in the Middle East. So smack bang in the middle of that is Israel. Is really, really important country. So, in the year 168 BC, there was a particularly nasty conqueror by the name of Antiochus, Antiochus IV. Um, he gave himself the name um, Epiphanes, which sounds like the word epiphany. That's because it is based on the same Greek, and it literally means God manifest. So, humble man, very humble calls himself God Manifest. And he's, um, he's the king of the Seleucids, which is effectively, uh, we could say, Iraq, Iran, um, Afghanistan, Syria, countries like that, would have been his empire. Um, but far from kind of what we would consider to be a Middle Eastern culture today, um, they were actually Hellenistic, which means Greek. They were a Greek culture, heavily influenced by Greece. They followed a Greek pantheon, so Zeus, and, and the idea of Olympus and things like that. And um, he really liked this pantheon, old Antiochus. This idea that uh, men could be gods. Gods were just better men. And he comes along to Jerusalem and he conquers Jerusalem because, hey, he wants to get, get to Egypt at some point. And he goes, well, I don't, I don't like this religion. What's this religion saying God is not a man? In fact, God is distinctly not man. What's this religion saying there's only one God? What's, what's, what's that about? No, 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 I don't, I, I don't like that. No, I want, I want you to worship me as a God, and I want you to worship Zeus. And so when he conquers Jerusalem, he makes any worship of Yahweh illegal, bans it entirely. If anybody is caught in any way, shape, or form following the Jewish belief, they are killed. That includes circumcision. So if they were already circumcised, they had to keep that secret because they would have been killed for the fact that before he came and conquered, they had followed their practice. Um, huge problem. And understandably, this caused a lot of pain, 
a lot of um, anguish, and very quickly there was a revolution um, led by, uh, amongst many others, the main kind of people that led it, um, was a, 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 a gentleman by the name of Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus. And the Maccabean rec Revolution um, takes place as about four years, something like that. And um, a, a revolution is, is led. And by the end of it, they take back Jerusalem from Antiochus and uh, they take back control and they gain that freedom that they've wanted for so long. There's a particularly nasty thing that happens three days before the end of this though. Antiochus, probably desperate at this point and wanting to break the spirit of the Israelites, breaks into the temple. He goes into the Holy of Holies, the place where the priests would meet with God. And he takes the skin of a pig and he sacrifices the skin of the pig to Zeus on the altar of God. Now, if you know anything about Jewish culture, you know that that is literally it's sacrilege. It's sacrilege. Horrible, horrible. They win their revolution and the first thing pretty much that happens is uh, Judas Maccabeus gets hold of a load of priests and he says, right, we need, to, we need to sanctify this place again. We need to dedicate it back to God, back to Yahweh. And they have this big festival where they rededicate the temple to God. That festival is still celebrated today as Hanukkah. The Festival of Lights, Hanukkah, is a celebration of the rededication of that temple to God. Now, why have I told you all that? That's a lot of history. Why have I told you that? Well, when they were celebrating the fact that Judas Maccabeus, a man, came and rescued them from their oppression and rededicated the temple to God, the way that they celebrated it was by waving palm fronds in the street and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. That's how they celebrated being freed from their oppression. Waving palm fronds. Palm branches after this revolution became a big, uh, strong symbol for um, Israel um, of both their, their kind of nationalism uh, and also of victory. The phrase Hosanna is uh, pretty much exactly how the phrase uh, Oh, save us is spoken in Hebrew. If you speak Hebrew and you want to say Oh, save us, you pretty much end up saying Hosanna. And it became um, this big kind of praise saying. It refers to Psalm 118, a psalm that's sung at Passover. It's all tying up, coming together. From this, you've got a crowd of people welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, waving palm fronds and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to the king. I, I think they were declaring Jesus as the Messiah. But the Messiah that they expected. I think they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. I genuinely do. But, their expectation of the Messiah was one who would draw their sword and lead a revolution that would kick the Romans out of Jerusalem forever and wrest control back to the Jewish people. 
They expected Jesus to be the Messiah. They were correct. But they grounded their expectation of what the Messiah would be in their human historical understanding. They didn't see Jesus fully for who he is. They didn't understand what this Messiah would be like. So that's that, that's that crowd. Now, let's compare this with the people in Jerusalem. So the people in Jerusalem, very different story. People in Jerusalem basically go, who, who's that? Who, who are they? What? Oh, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's Jesus. Jesus, that guy from um, Galilee. He's a, he's a prophet. And um, we don't know this for certain, but there's two ways of reading that phrase, um, the Jesus, uh, he, he's Jesus, a prophet from Galilee. Um, one of them is just very straightforward. Yeah, he's a, he's a prophet from Galilee. But there's a good chance, actually, that it was more like, oh, that's Jesus. He's from Galilee. Ugh. See, Galilee wasn't a popular place um, for the southern parts of Israel and, and Judah. Galilee was the sort of uh, estate that no one liked to talk about. It's kind of the equivalent, and I can say this because I grew up there and I'm from there, it's the equivalent of going, oh, yeah, that's Tom from Medway. Chatham. I think there's a good chance that that's what's going on because um, Jerusalem was filled with a lot of um, Judean people and they had a very poor um, view of people from Galilee. So there's, there's a good chance that there was a kind of, oh, there's a prophet from Galilee. Yuck. Already... They're underselling and underappreciating who Jesus is. The Pharisees and religious leaders certainly would have been part of that, that group of people in Jerusalem. They would have had an expectation. They've already encountered Jesus once before. They know that he causes trouble. They would have expected Jesus to cause trouble. They were ready for it. They already had plans in place. And you know what? To an extent, they were right. Jesus did cause a whole shake-up and a ton of trouble. But again, not human. A spiritual shake-up. I use the word shake-up intentionally because where the passage says that the whole city was stirred, the word that's used in the Greek is esaistha, which is where we get the word seismic from. And it's used by Matthew in two other places. The first one is when Jesus dies on the cross and the earth shakes. There is a great esaistha. The second time, the, other, the third time, the other time, is prior to Jesus' resurrection. Presumably when the stone is rolled away, there is a great shaking. And again, the word is esaistha. Matthew is saying... Jesus' arrival completely and utterly shakes everything up. And we can tell that just by how Matthew structures the book of Matthew. The previous 20 chapters of Matthew are dedicated to roughly 30-ish years of Jesus' life. The following eight chapters are dedicated to the Holy Week. Seven days. A third of Matthew is dedicated to this Holy Week, starting with Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. 
the people had an expectation of who Jesus was and what he was going to do. The crowd that followed him expected him to go and conquer. And very quickly, their expectations are dashed. In fact, almost immediately, because the next part of the passage, Jesus goes straight to the temple. Jesus could have gone to the palace, but he doesn't. He goes to the temple to get the temple rededicated to God, to sort out the problems in the temple. They wanted Jesus to go to the palace, to be the conqueror, to kick out Pilate and the Romans, but he doesn't. So how were they feeling? How shocked were they when they find that the Messiah isn't the conqueror that they were expecting? How shocked are they when they hear the news that their Messiah has been arrested? Do they even believe he's the Messiah at this point? How shocked is everyone when the Messiah dies the most insulting, shameful death at the time? How do you think their expectations were then? How would your expectation be? You had this high hope of finally being freed and then you watch it dashed away within a week in fact not even a week five days within five days all hope dashed expectations when they're not met can cause great heartache now we all know that their expectation was slightly off Jesus did conquer but he conquered death Jesus did save But he didn't save us from oppression by Romans. He saved the world by oppression of sin. Their expectations were grounded in a very human grounding. They didn't get the spiritual. And the irony of this is actually the scriptures made it quite clear that this was what was going to happen. After Jesus dies... And, uh, and, and um, during that time, we have the, um, the road to Emmaus experience where some individuals are, are traveling to Emmaus and um, Jesus, resurrected Jesus, um, comes and walks alongside them. And they don't realize it's Jesus and they're talking with him. And Jesus explains the scriptures to them in such great detail that by the end of this, uh, this walk with Jesus, they go, yeah. Of course Jesus had to die. It makes perfect sense now. All from the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures and the prophets. If anybody actually read and focused on all of the the stuff about the Messiah, we could say it shouldn't have come as a surprise. Jesus had to die. That's in the prophecies. But their expectation is is very much grounded in this kind of idea of the Maccabean revolution happening again, the Messiah conquering and saving. I also wonder, almost as an aside, what was Jesus' expectation of this week? See, Jesus did know. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that he was going to die. And he knew that it was going to be horrible. He also knew that as part of that, He, who knew no sin, would become sin. A complete separation from God the Father that he'd never experienced before. In the Garden of Gethsemane, by the way, also near Bethphage, um, 
Jesus cries a prayer and is so stressed that he sweats blood, which is a medical phenomenon. It does happen when someone is under so much stress that their body can't take it and they sweat blood. Jesus knew what was going to happen. What was his expectation? What was it like for him knowing that he was coming into Jerusalem to effectively finish off his, his earthly ministry? Just something that I ponder. There's not really an answer. Just something that I ponder. Did anyone expect Jesus to rise again victoriously? No. I don't see in the Bible any character in the Gospels who expected Jesus to rise again. Now imagine the elation when that expectation is broken. Think about my namesake, the disciple Thomas, hearing reports that Jesus has come back to life. No, unless I see him and I can put my fingers in those wounds, I won't believe it. And then, bam. Oi. Here I am. You want to go? Yeah? Cool. Yeah, I'm here. Even his disciples didn't expect him to rise again. Jesus defies expectation repeatedly especially when that expectation is grounded rooted has its foundations in an earthly human way of thinking i wonder what are we expecting what are we expecting today do we expect jesus to move do we expect people to be saved? Personally, I think the answer is yes, by the way. I think that that is an expectation that we have, and that is fantastic. Are we expecting God to move in wonderful, powerful ways? Yes. Do we need to be careful what that expectation looks like? Yes. Because we can expect God to move, but if we expect God to move in a very specific way and we engineer things so the only way that God can move is in that specific way, we're going to get in the way. We're going to be a nuisance. We need to expect God to move, but we need to be ready to be surprised by how God moves. And um, I've got a story that sort of, sort of ties in with this a little bit. It's something that I, I really feel God wants me to share, so I'm going to try and make it as relevant as I can but um, most of you probably don't know this because this time we didn't email it out um, but um, we as a family once again have been quite unwell we got the norovirus yay lovely happy days um, it was a horrible two or three days and as a result of that Nick actually became quite unwell and she got gastritis um, inflammation of the stomach and she actually threw up blood at one point which is obviously quite a scary occurrence and um, uh, very long story short, she ended up uh, at A&E. John was fortunately in childcare. He was able to go back to his childcare at that point. Um, and um, Nick was waiting and waiting and waiting in A&E just to get an answer what was going on. That she was nil by mouth because they might have had to put a camera down her throat. And it was all just a lot. It was a lot for Nick. It was a lot for us as a family. Ali and Helen picked up John from the childminder because it's just up the road. And I'm there going, right, when do I need to head over? What do I need to do? So there's lots going on. And eventually, um, 
Nick had no idea what was happening because no one could tell her. And I messaged a few friends and said, look, we need you to pray. Okay, we, we, need, we need you to pray. We, we, we've, just, we've just had enough of this. And then I, um, I prayed. I prayed an incredibly desperate prayer. Uh, one of those prayers that you get from your gut, which is basically just, God, I can't even, there's no, there's no fancy words here. Help. Just, just, just help. It was one of those prayers. And I, I felt a stirring in me, like that shaking up to uh to grab my guitar and play a certain worship song um it's not one that we do here but i probably will bring it here at some point um and i just i just right i've got to be obedient i've got to do this and i got up and i walked over to where my guitar was and before i'd even grabbed the guitar case i heard my phone buzz and there was something in me that knew that it was nick saying i'm coming home i just knew i had this expectation our our friends and family are praying i'm praying i'm going to go and do what god's asked me to do i'm expecting god to move i don't know how he's going to do it but i expect him to and before i'd even grabbed the guitar i got a text from nick saying i'm being discharged i'm going to head back to my parents and uh, we know what's going on now and uh, i still grabbed my guitar and i played the worship song that god told me to play out of obedience i expected god to move i just didn't know how he was going to do it and it was an incredible moment i i i cried um for many reasons um relief <laughs> being one of them uh seeing god move in such a powerful uh, and amazing way what do we expect god to do what do we expect god to do do we limit God with our expectations? Do we not expect enough of God? You know, God wants to be involved in every part of your life. He loves you with an unshakable love. He made you. The Bible says he knitted you in your mother's womb. That's a hands-on experience. God wants to be a part of your life. He's interested in you. Expect God to move. Give him the room to move and he will. And when we start to do this, we begin to see incredible things happen. Revelation says that we'll see the lion and the lamb lie down together. It says that we'll see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But we can see that happening today. We can see that happening in Pembury, in Maidstone, in Tunbridge Wells, in the places that we live and come from. We just have to be expectant. And when we're expectant, the things that God can do blow you away. Absolutely blow you away. Give me a second because I think I'm getting something from God. I didn't know exactly how um, how I was going to finish this. Literally, the last thing on my notes says, what are we expecting? And then nothing. I have no expectations as to how this is going to finish. But I feel, um, 
I feel like there's at least one person here who who has reached a point where they have no more expectation of God. Perhaps because they're desperate and haven't seen him move. Um, perhaps because they can't see a way out of the situation that they're in. Maybe there's one, maybe there's there's more. I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm getting a really strong sense of that. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you, whoever that is. And um, maybe if some people from prayer ministry team could come and stand in the usual place and, and I encourage you to grab them and, and speak with them and, and pray. Um, absolutely. Father God, thank you for your triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Thank you that you uh, defied all expectation. Thank you that uh, uh, we approach this, this holy week, the week where you waged a, a war on sin and death and ultimately won that war, defying all human expectation. I pray that everyone here can have their eyes open to how amazing and powerful you are. I pray that we can have expectations of you but not limit you with those expectations, God. We want to see you move, and we are seeing you move, and we recognize that, but we want to see you move more. We want to see people flooding to you, finding you. We want those conversations like the, one that, uh, the ones that Patrick shared about at the NHS. We want those opportunities. And when those opportunities come, Lord, may we expect you to move and just let you do it. And Lord, I do pray for uh, whoever that word may have been for, if indeed it was a word from you, that you would find the ability to have expectation in God again. That whatever hopelessness you feel, whatever despair will be taken away by the, the power of God. I pray that over you. And I pray that you would see God move. And that when God moves, it would defy all expectation. One day we will see the lion lie down with the lamb. We'll see you coming on the clouds. And kings and kingdoms will bow down. And every chain will break Lord may we see those chains break today hallelujah thank you for who you are thank you for this week can we help us to meditate on you focus on you as we approach this big celebration of Easter hallelujah and thank you for all you've done Amen.